You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 22nd of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up. The brave American soldiers which held their lines and fought back Hitler's forces during the Christmas of 1944. Brave Ukrainian soldiers are doing the same to Putin's forces this Christmas. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky uses his only foreign trip since Russia invaded his country to tell Washington exactly how it is. We'll ask if Capitol Hill will continue with the support as much as he needs. Also coming up, we learn about the additional funds to bolster the US military presence in the Arctic. We'll enjoy the seasonal art news and go through the papers too. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Israel has a new government seen as the most right-wing in the country's history. Sam Bankman-Fried, the former boss of the failed cryptocurrency exchange FTX, has arrived in New York from the Bahamas to face fraud charges. And a Glaswegian chef credited with inventing the chicken tikka masala by adding a tomato sauce to dry chicken in a restaurant to please his customers has died aged 77. We begin today with the news that for the first time since his country was invaded, President Volodymyr Zelensky has left Ukraine and travelled to Washington. In the military khakis he's promised he'd wear every day until his country is free, President Zelensky was met by President Joe Biden at the White House and then at a joint session of Congress, Mr Zelensky handed the Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Kamala Harris a Ukrainian flag that he retrieved from the battlefront at Bakhmut on Tuesday. Well, to tell us more about uh, the significance and any progress that could be made by President Zelensky's visit, I'm delighted to say that Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chernak, joins me in the studio. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Emma. So I think we just need to sort of look at the imagery of the thing before we even start talking about what in fact was said. When you see Zelensky out of the war zone and you see him in his khakis, in the machine, you know, in the great machine of Washington, it is an astonishingly striking image, isn't it? It absolutely is, and I, I feel like personally, I can only imagine what is going through his head, um, having having done that. Um, if you've been in a war zone essentially for the last ten, eleven months, um, to then end up in Washington D.C. Flying as he did in this sort of entirely surprised visit, uh, and and wondering, you know, if he'll be able to get back as well, which he obviously will. But just the risk that inv- that is involved in this, and then coming into the the pageantry and everything that is involved in the United States, it was relatively understated, but still, you know, the the imagination of going into Congress and getting standing ovations and everything else. I thought his. Um, his tone and his style was really quite striking throughout this. He did seem to be aware, despite having been in a war zone for all this time, that he needed almost a mix of seriousness, but even with some occasional levity as well for the American public, for the American politicians, 
in order to get his message across. And that really was pretty incredible. Indeed. I think CNN this morning has reported on the fact that he's a master of historical illusion and also public relations theatre. And he he stepped up entirely to the public occasion with the political gravitas as well. He did. And he was quite emotional at, at times. But as I say, at other times, he was also kind of joking, I think, particularly because uh, and we can we'll, we'll get to some clips and sort of some of the specifics. But I think what was striking as well was you listen to Zelensky at different points in this conflict. Sometimes he is very demanding understandably so about what he needs what he wants this was a little bit different and i think the tone in that sense was striking too that his tone was more one of being deferential grateful to the united states talking about the importance of the role of the united states but not giving a sort of laundry list of demands of what comes next what he needs from the united states it was almost as if he was this time saying you know everything that i need Behind closed doors, they were certainly discussing that. But in his speech before Congress, even in the press conference, it was not nearly as direct as otherwise. And I think that was an interesting tactic as well, as if this was the moment to shore up support, to tell the Americans, you are part of this, this is a fight against democracy, you must do everything you can, and I am grateful for everything that you have done up to this point. And he did it in that way that he is absolutely brilliant at doing, which is making every word that he says absolutely relevant to his audience. Yes, absolutely so, exactly, with, with his, whether it was historical references, you heard also in, in the menu clip talking about Christmas and, and World War II, um, and, and various other aspects as well, quoting Franklin Delano Roosevelt at, at various points. He's, uh, there's obviously been a lot of allusions to Winston Churchill and Winston Churchill's visit and speech before Congress in the war as well. So yes, he's very much aware of the weight of, of history, if you will, while, he's, while he was giving these speeches. So tell us a little bit more about what he said and you know let's let's have a listen to what he actually told both Congress and and President Biden. Well, so I think there were a lot of interesting things that that he said throughout the the press conferences and the speech. I wanted to pick out on a couple of them. Um and and one of them I think really uh highlights the sort of fine line that he was holding throughout most of it um in terms of as I say being deferential to the United States but clearly at the same time you know that under all of that there is a a a a need for additional weaponry additional support from the United States and let's listen to one clip where that sort of came out in a bit of a spontaneous moment before Congress we have artillery. Yes. Thank you. We have it. Is it enough? Honestly, not really. Incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. <laughs> it, it was, and you almost felt like that was, I'm not sure that was in his speech necessarily, or at least the way that it was put. It was, it was quite striking, and you saw this sort of uh, hesitant laughter uh, from members of Congress, because this is, of course, a huge issue in the United States as well. There are worries from Ukrainians that support in the U.S. is wavering somewhat, particularly on the Republican side. There is a small but loud minority, if you will, of Republicans that are questioning support for Ukraine. And so that's really what that clip kind of got to. There is a really strong feeling nowadays building up in, in the fact that Zelensky went to the United States, not to Germany, not to France, not to the United Kingdom, especially Germany and the UK being the, the two other great big um, supporters of the Ukrainian war effort. But because there is a recognition now that the ability uh, that Ukraine has to withstand and 
push back against the Russians is almost entirely determined by the amount of help that the United States gives, that it's actually the US who ultimately are driving the pace of this war. Absolutely. And I think what was interesting there, too, is there was another quote that I found interesting from his speech, for example. He he spoke very directly about the stakes of this also for the U.S. He said, this battle cannot be frozen or postponed. It cannot be ignored, hoping that the ocean or something else will provide protection. So he was speaking very directly there to the U.S., talked about the interconnectivity of the world as well. And then to play you one more clip as well, what was striking was he also tried to make the case very much that Ukraine is the one at the front line, but Ukraine can be trusted, if you will. And this clip gets a little bit of that. Thank you for both financial packages you have already provided us with and the ones you may be willing to decide on. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. It's a very, very clever way to sort of, when you empower your audience with, by saying, them, you know, this is not charity, this is an investment in, in the stuff that actually America is built on. And frankly, that was also clearly his advisors know what the mood is in the United States as well, that this is, to be honest, a question that is being asked in the United States. You know, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, spoke about, asked, you know, s suggested in a tweet that Zelensky is a man on welfare asking for help from the United States. So you do have that line in the U.S. from, as I say, a small but vocal minority of people. And he was very much directly addressing that throughout his speech to say, no, we are doing this for you as well. This matters for your security. And that was something that Joe Biden also, it should be said, really focused on in his own remarks with Zelensky. We do have a little bit of a deadline here, though, as well, don't we? Not, not just because of Zelensky had about 24 hours before we are assuming he is now back in, in Ukraine in the war zone. But the Republicans take over the House in the new year. And there are warnings that the bill that supported and, and gave so much to Ukraine in the last 24 hours, we might not see the like of that again, because if you look at what's, you know, the, the Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, he is actually pushing back against the amount of money that Ukraine is going to get, because there is a feeling in the United States that some people are weary of helping Ukraine. There is some feeling that people are weary of helping. I would say that by comparison to other uh, conflicts, other things we've seen in the U.S. support for Ukraine does still hold up quite strongly. There will be a package of uh, additional, an additional $45 billion for Ukraine uh, that should be passed this week as part of a larger spending package. And, you know, I... I think one can make too much of the the vocal uh, people that are questioning support for Ukraine as well. The problem in the next Congress is going to be that this minority will gain control to some extent of Kevin McCarthy. He's going to lead a very difficult House majority, a very slim House majority for the Republicans. And a bigger question, frankly, will be what he has to give away in order to get things like support for Ukraine through. You can certainly expect more oversight, um, which is, again, what gets to kind of Zelensky's clip about saying this is an investment. He sort of promised. He, he also talked about the military. One other, one other comment on that I can give you quickly that I think was aimed at Republicans as well was there was a very emotional moment where he talked about the fact that 
as much as you will support us, we do not expect boots on the ground from you. We Ukrainians are very capable of using your weapons, of using your military assistance. We do not expect you to be on the ground here in this fight. So he was really highlighting all of those points to try and assuage those Republicans that might question the aid going forward in the new year. Chris Chermak, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And we stay with military funding because Christmas came early for the Pentagon on Friday when the US Senate approved a new defence spending bill with $40 billion more than what President Joe Biden had proposed in his budget. Of particular note was additional funds to bolster the US military presence in the Arctic. Monocle's contributor Gregory Scruggs recently reported from Alaska about this build-up for Monocle's winter newspaper Alpino and he joined Marcus Hippie a little earlier. For Alaska, which has long had a, a military presence, uh, but one that has gone a bit fallow as attention from the U.S. military shifted toward the Middle East, this renewed interest in the Arctic is very big news. Uh, senator Dan Sullivan, the, the junior senator from Alaska who entered Congress first in 2014, has been stumping on Arctic security and defense posture since he arrived on Capitol Hill. And this is really vindication for him. He makes a compelling argument that Alaska is something of a military triad for the United States. It's the uh, main location for radar systems for missile defense. Uh, if you think of the the polar route and potential tra- attacks on the mainland U.S. would eventually would likely come over Alaska. Uh, as well as the location of a 105th generation fighter jet, so it's sort of a top Air Force uh, platform. And then finally, the uh, the recently uh, christened Arctic Angels, the 11th Airborne Division, a military expedition, an army expeditionary force. So this package continues the military build-up in Alaska and the Arctic a fair bit. Over $330 million will go there in 2023. Greg, how will that money be spent? It's going to be sprinkled throughout the armed services branches that are located in Alaska. Uh, a lot top line top line is certainly uh, new uh, materiel. The the E seven wedge tail is going to replace the E three AWACS. It's a, a, a advanced warning aircraft system at the main Air Force base. There uh, it's going to be a runway extension, uh, aircraft maintenance hangar, uh, upgrading recreational facilities for the troops. Uh, pr- provisions of additional cold weather gear, uh, and then some nuts and bolts things as well as some environmental remediation on some of the older buildings and facilities uh, up in Alaska. It should also be pointed out, as you probably realized as well when you were there just last month for this reporting trip, that it can be quite dark and cold in the winter. Is anyone talking about mental health of those people who are positioned there? Yes, that is a small but noteworthy component of this new defense spending bill. There's actually been a rash of suicides among service members in Alaska in in recent months and years. And the Pentagon recognizes that this is a hardship post. This is an all-volunteer force, and uh, you don't you can quit if you want. Uh, this is not a conscript army. And for folk for for recruits, many of whom come from the southern United States from warmer climates, being posted in northern Alaska, especially in the winter, is is 
very challenging on their mental health. And so there are there are funds in this bill for additional counselors, for flights home to give uh, soldiers a break from the brutal cold and dark. And in general, the, the Pentagon seems to be responding that if, if they want to have an increased presence in the far north, they need to accommodate the needs of those uh, troops on the ground as well. Greg, tell us what you saw on that reporting trip in the far north. As we mentioned already, Alaska was strategically important for the US during the Cold War, and then the focus kind of shifted away, and now it's been shifting back again. What was the mood there? The mood was jubilant among those who are passionate about Arctic warfare. I embedded with troops at the Northern Warfare Training Center, where soldiers go through basic cold weather instruction. They learn how to operate, not just survive in the cold, but fight effectively in the cold. And there are instructors who are passionate about this type of warfare, who could not be more excited about the military top brass showing this renewed interest. The number of instructors has tripled and the number of trainees has quadrupled. So this winter will be a uh, a hive of activity at this remote outpost that I visited in northern Alaska. Uh, and then on the main bases as well, where you have this concentration of military hardware, troops, Air Force, uh, fighter jets, etc., there is certainly uh, a sense they're no longer a backwater. They're now very much on the front lines, if you will, um, of potential future military engagement. Certainly the recent establishment of an Arctic Security Study Center uh, in Anchorage uh, named after the late U.S. Senator Ted Stevens, is considered an important strategic move. The Pentagon has these strategic study centers sprinkled throughout the world focused on different regions. Uh, the oldest one, the, the one focused on Europe in, in Garmisch in Germany, uh, was key for training the NATO allies that joined the treaty alliance after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And there's a sense that this, this uh, Arctic Security Study Center in Anchorage will have a similar role uh, per perhaps, for example, uh, as Sweden and Finland hopefully join NATO in the very near future and the alliance sees its Arctic warfare capacity bolstered uh, by the Arctic 7, uh, as of course Russia is now out of the picture. How much concern was there in Alaska at the same time when you were there, considering that Moscow has long had a rather strong presence in the Arctic and China also has major Arctic ambitions? Very much top of line, uh, both among uh, troops on the ground and, and uh, generals that I spoke with, the soldiers were glued uh, to YouTube videos of the war in Ukraine. I mean, it's the hottest. It is it is an actual hot war on planet Earth right now. And as people who train for this kind of scenario, they were uh, picking apart strategic decisions, following point of view uh, of individual soldiers, and I think very much imagining that that could be them one day. Meanwhile, at the higher strategic level, yes, I interviewed both a general and an admiral in the Coast Guard, and they recognized that the U.S. military, uh, and to some extent NATO writ large, is playing catch-up to the largest Arctic power. Russia has 40, an estimated 46 icebreakers to a paltry two in the United States, uh, although more are currently under construction. Uh, and China's uh, claims to be a near-Arctic power, a, a phrase that's met with some skepticism, but nevertheless they are investing in the military hardware uh, that would allow them to operate in the far north. And certainly the Pentagon uh, sees the need across the board to keep up. And uh, this is a boom time for those defense uh, contractors, including uh, uh, Bay Systems out of Sweden, uh, that has been uh, is providing replacements for some of the troop vehicles that uh, I observed malfunctioning in the Arctic that were designed to work well in in desert settings, for example.
Just finally, Gregory, what do you think are America's key assets when it's trying to gain a stronger position in the Arctic region? A uh, key asset that I think is lacking, particularly in, in the U.S.'s largest strategic competitor at this point, Russia, is the presence of indigenous people. Native Alaskans have lived in this environment for thousands of years. Uh, they played a key role during World War II uh, with the, when the so-called Eskimo scouts were something of a um, uh, eyes and ears on the Arctic for the U.S. military. And I uh, observed a potlatch, a tr a, a, an indigenous feast that was given by a tribe in honor of the, the military uh, soldiers that were based in Alaska, the, the special, specifically the Arctic Angels, uh, who, who have this newly minted uh, uh, patch as the 11th Airborne Division. And it was, it was abundantly clear that the native people in this region are thrilled to have uh, a bolstered defense presence. And I think that is a unique asset, uh, not necessarily the case in other Arctic nations. That was Monocle's Greg Scruggs there. You can read more about his reporting trip to Alaska and America's Arctic ambitions in Monocle's brand new Alpino newspaper. Well worth a read over the holidays. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. The time here in London is 7.20 to 1. A quick look at the latest news headlines. Israel has a new government being seen as the most right-wing in the country's history. It sealed Benjamin Netanyahu's return to power, serving an historic sixth term as Prime Minister. Palestinians, meanwhile, fear the new government will also strengthen Israel's hold onto the occupied West Bank. The former boss of the failed cryptocurrency exchange FTX has arrived in New York from the Bahamas to face fraud charges. Sam Bankman-Fried was extradited on suspicion of committing one of the biggest financial frauds in US history. And a Glaswegian chef credited with inventing the chicken tikka masala has died aged 77. Ali Ahmed Aslam is said to have come up with the dish in the 1970s when a customer asked if there was a way of making his chicken tikka less dry. His solution was to add a creamy tomato sauce. Some versions of the story say a can of tomato soup was used. And those are the headlines. <laughs> Right, let's have a flick through some of the day's newspapers. I'm delighted to say Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow with the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House, is in the studio with us. Hello, Yossi. Hello, good morning. Good to have you with us. Um, a moment ago in the headlines, I mentioned the creation of Israel's new government, uh, the most right-wing in the country's history. Mm. And Netanyahu is back as a sixth for the sixth time as Prime Minister. How's it being covered in the papers? Well, definitely mixed reviews because this hasn't been such an, uh, an experience. It's interesting there is criticism from both the, the, the more liberal progressive but also from the right. Uh, I'd start actually from Israel Ayom that actually a newspaper that was initiated to support Netanyahu and they are not happy with the far right keeps putting demands on Netanyahu because they don't trust Netanyahu. They know that he would promise them everything but his track record that he will never fulfill what he does. So they say, oh, you use Netanyahu as he is the big enemy uh, for, for the right in Israel. You don't sign an agreement, then they sign uh, 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 an agreement. On the other hand, uh, the Haaretz, which is the liberal progressive uh, newspaper, some are called leftist newspaper in Israel, uh, will argue exactly the opposite, that this is the most far right. And actually, to be honest, it's a bit premature to say that he has a government because Netanyahu is Netanyahu is a bit econom economical with the truth. He told the president yesterday, 12 minutes before his mandate 
expired that he has a government, but he hasn't signed all the coalition agreement. And definitely he, with his in Likud party, as, as, as one of the opinion writers in Aras says, uh, haven't, actually they haven't agreed to the ministry. So there are a lot of open issues and he might not be even be able on Wednesday it's interesting to present this government. It's interesting you say that because there, is, there seems in the way that the, the news has been reported that there is a sense of finality to this. That there is finally the end of all the government's problems because how many elections have we had in the last few years? How many governments have been have been failed to be you know how many governments have just not been brought together? So is this any different or not? No I, I think in this case there's going to be a government. The, the difference here because the, the members of the coalition, the future outside the Likud party don't trust him. So they ask for legislation and promises before they join a coalition because you know the day after he won't going to do any of, of it. So that's what's kind of the delays. It's 50 days after the, the election. So and which we, everyone expected this is kind of a full on right wing government. This will be assembled in no time. But because it's it's this element of, of lack of trust, and of course this is will be the most right wing, and so what we just heard about the Palestinians very worried about the, the progressive liberal in Israel because the kind of legislation. So that's kind of the newspapers covering the rages, some more in hope and some more in dread. Okay, let's move on to uh, widespread coverage of strikes. Um, if you go to Le Parisien at the moment, that they are talking about. Um, uh, I think two out of three uh, TGV will not be running um, in the either tomorrow and uh, Saturday and Sunday. Obviously, is Christmas, um, but there are but there is not just strikes in France. The United Kingdom, England, is experiencing a very hard week. And again, in the day that you know, most of the headlines across the world is about Zelensky's visit to the White House, actually the British newspapers, <laughs> with the exception of the, of, of the FT, is all about, about the strikes, especially the NHS. The, the Guardian also talk about the NHS brace for surge in patients after strike by ambulance staff. It's a very British affair in this sense that actually the patients are so considering in the UK, even if they feel really felt really unwell yesterday, the news was strike, and this is really dangerous, stayed at home and didn't even call uh, the emergency 999 uh, call. And in the meantime, a lot of the newspapers here talk about you know, the, the government is completely missing in action in this, in negotiating. Uh, it's from fierce, sicker suffering at home, as 99 calls uh, plament, uh, and it's just to be of a new pay deal to end strikes, the Daily Telegraph says, but maybe try to support a bit the government. But I think this is kind of this winter of discontent. It's, it's, it's very obvious in the UK and the government either offers people not to engage in a dangerous activity, as the Secretary of Health suggests, uh, to actually legislating, uh, trying to legislate against strikes. So we'll see in the next few months, that's kind of... It was a ridiculous, it was a rather strange thing yesterday that the headlines that were coming out when the ambulance crews were on strike yeah. and people were very worried was, was in, don't drink too much because if you there's no one to pick you up off the floor and also don't go and do any dangerous sports. It, it seemed rather 
strange and in a, in a very very serious situation you know life is dangerous it's things 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 can happen I was actually saying that my neighbors are building an extension I saw the builders yesterday on a ladder and the first thought came my mind actually this Elsa Stay off said, the ladder. don't don't engage in so you said you're, you're, you're actually coming on the roof and what will happen God forbid if something happened I think this is yeah whatever we do in life there is level of, of risk and it's not for the government tell people not to do it but make sure that there is a NHS that can that works Yossi Meckelberg thank you so much as ever for joining us on the globalist you with monocle 24. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Finally, let's talk Arthur with the writer and curator Susanna Davis-Crook. Hello, Susanna. Hello. Good to have Good you morning. with us. Um, now, the, the, the big story in, in Britain at the moment in the art world is the restoration of the early Renaissance master, uh, Piero della Francesca and his nativity. One of the most tender, beautiful pieces of early Renaissance art. Glorious, glorious stuff. But there's a massive row that's, that's, that's brewed because... At least one critic, art critic, has said pretty much the unthinkable, which they have accused the National Gallery of messing up the restoration. And not just messing it up a little bit, but really, really, really messing it up. Yes, so uh, ma- mangling it, I think. Um, <laughs> and so it's been compared um, with uh, the the restoration undertaken by the 81-year-old Cecilia Jimenez, um, uh, who kind of re- restored, restored lovingly, uh, but in a not very effective way, um, a fresco. And that became known as uh, Monkey Christ. And so it has been compared with that restoration, which, given it's the National Gallery, uh, is not ideal. And so they, they supposedly undertook this restoration intended to reconstruct and give a true sense of what the painting might have been like when it was new in uh, 1475 but critics are indeed suggesting it's a bit of a catastrophe and has taken away the magic of the original there's, um, there's one critic in particular so so just to put this in a bit, tiny bit of context the National Gallery acquired the painting in the 19th century and it had already either been badly damaged or messed up in a, in a restoration. So we weren't starting from a good position, were we? But there, the most important areas that, that the, at least some of the rather sharper tongues are focused on is the faces of the two shepherds, which were very, very messed in, in the original. And what appears to have happened is that they have actually filled in the faces. 
Yes, so um, the Guardian's Jonathan Jones has actually said, uh, what in the name of God inspired the restorers to paint two completely new and distractingly moronic shepherds' faces? <laughs> this is not what I want for Christmas. It's um, quite so true. I think <laughs> you can have a look and uh, check it out for yourself. It's on display now in the National Gallery. Um, but I think worth a look, deciding whether it's a, a triumph or a, or a catastrophe indeed. It's incredible. It says like a pastiche of Renaissance art by a very bad app. Um, the restoration, why does the shepherds look gaunless is a curly haired one at a school disco and is the other trying to remember where he parked the co- the, the, the donkey um, <laughs> as a curator and an art expert at what point is it is it generally thought a good idea to fill in gaps when it comes to existing paintings or is the rule of thumb up until now been if it's not there you can't you shouldn't fill it in um, well, I couldn't speak fully on the part of restorers, um, but you know, I think the idea of of this and of the from the National Gallery's point of view was to to give it a sense of us as the audience being able to experience it as it may have originally been experienced, which you know can can be a really good thing. But um, again, you know, the flip side of that is we then lose some of the original magic, and perhaps if it doesn't feel quite right, then it can be more alarming than uh, than kind of uh, yeah. enticing. It's, it's- <laughs> going to be an interesting trip to the National Gallery. Um, let's move on to this story about Germany returning its first group of stolen Benin bronzes, Benin bronzes to Nigeria. Um, is, is this the beginning of a, bigger, of a bigger wave that we're likely to see across the world? Well, yes, potentially. I mean, really leading the way here. So um, these were taken in 1897 during a raid of the former kingdom of Benin. um, And a great number of these precious artefacts were stolen um, by the British colonialists. And over a thousand of these were then purchased by the German museums. um, And this week they have been repatriated. um, And... uh, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock um, has said we are facing up to our history of colonialism, uh, which feels very pointed and like a bit of a gauntlet throw for other cultural institutions like the British Museum, um, who have notoriously stalled um, and are kind of uh, actually not not going to... Well, at the moment, there's no kind of plans or moves um, from from the British Museum on that. So it is interesting to see how this plays out and uh, kind of how this will continue. How big a player is is Germany in this now? I mean, the fact that there's a symbolic thing, but you have you know calls to the United Kingdom, the United States, France in particular, to start to to continue or to to, to step up a little bit to start sending back stolen works. Yeah, well, um, there's I think uh, around sort of nine hundred uh, Benin bronzes. Um, in the British Museum alone. So the UK and the British Museum is, is a key player in this um, and at the moment does not seem to be shifting. Um, the US has uh, this year played its part in restituting bronzes from the Smithsonian Institution's um, National Museum of African Art uh, in Washington, D.C. So um, there is a move. It is happening. Uh, but, but let's kind of see what the British Museum um, do with this wave Susanna Davis-Crook, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. And that's all the time we have for today's Globalist. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Marcus Hippie and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London and the Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>